In this era of grave spiritual crisis, it is not enough to simply know about your Catholic faith. That is why we need a Catholic toolbox to equip us with the practical skills necessary to live our Catholic faith to reach our ultimate goal, which is heaven for all eternity. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Join us every Tuesday night at 8pm for the Catholic Toolbox as we hand you the tools to go forth, live the faith and change our modern world today. Live on The Voice of Charity. Welcome back to another week on the Catholic Toolbox, The Art of Practical Catholicism. I'm your host and founder, George Manasseh, here as we compute with practical tools to live the Catholic faith in our modern world of today. And we often hear on the show uh, about spiritual warfare, you know, fighting uh, to become saints, to get to heaven, every day fighting the forces of evil. But here, let's go into the temporal affairs of the world and talk about war. Just War, the topic of Just War. So I've brought in here this week, Dr. Robert Haddad. Welcome aboard to the Catholic Toolbox again. Yeah, thank you very much, George. Happy to be back. It's always a pleasure to have you, um, enlightening us with your wisdom. And uh, let's, uh, let's not start any wars here on this uh, episode, but let's talk about the wars and uh, the whole concept of Just War and, and the whole situation. I know many people are thinking about it now in light of the fact uh, that Ukraine's been invaded by by Russia, and um, we we've seen over the past decades, you know, uh, the United States invading many countries, uh, including Iraq. So so, and there's many people in the Middle East who've come from the Middle East, migrated, and understand, you know, the whole concept of war, including my parents. I, I'm the son of a migrant um, uh, parents, and. And, and war is something which was very real. It, it was a big reality. So people want to make sense of it, especially in light of the teaching of the church. So if you could enlighten us on the whole concept of just war, where does war fit in, in the temporal affairs of the world? Well, as a starting principle, I'm going to say something very radical. War is evil. War is not a good thing. War is not part of God's plan for humanity. War enters into the world, enters into humanity because of sin. And in God's original plan for humanity, we were to be in union with God. Um, you know, we walked and talked with God. We had an awareness of God. Our intellect uh, and will were subject to God. And our passions and appetites and desires were subject to reason. And there was harmony between man and woman. There was harmony between humanity and nature and humanity and God. So where does, where does the first conflict come into being? With the original sin. As soon as we have original sin, all turmoil comes into all these relationships. Uh, within ourselves, there's now disharmony between the flesh and the spirit. There's a conflict there. Rather than being under the dominion of the spirit, 
now we are subject to the desires of the flesh, wayward desires of the flesh. Rather than being in harmony with each other, man and woman, there's conflict. And we see Adam straight away blaming Eve for the original sin. Now, she made me do it. And then, of course, worst of all, there's estrangement between humanity and God. And we're cast out of paradise, etc., etc. And we have the first murder when Cain killed Cain. Oh, sorry. Yeah, Cain killed Abel. Um, so war is inherently never a good thing. We see in all wars, we see uh, killing, we see murder, we see rape, we see destruction, and that's commonplace. And no one can say, hey, that's a good thing. You know, I'd like to be part of that. You're a newly married man. I'm a married man with a family. I've I got boys now 20, 21 years of age. I don't want them near a war, okay? But, there, and this is a big but. The church has always had a doctrine called just war. Well, at least since the time of St. Augustine in the 5th century. And so we ask ourselves the question, okay, when can someone fight in a war? Or when can a nation uh, uh, fight in a war against another? What are the conditions of this so-called just war, just war theory. And that's at the level of nations. There's also just war with respect to the internal operations of a state. I mean, we all have a police force, don't we? What's the point of a police force? It's to protect society from what? Other people's aggression, other people's violence, other people's, you know, killing, et cetera, et cetera. And we have a judiciary to back up the police and then punish the aggressor or the offender. And of course, we, within ourselves, between ourselves as individuals, we all have a right to self-defense, which is part, if someone attacks you, your person, or someone attacks your wife, your children, your, your home, uh, you have a right to defend yourself at that private level. And that's a, that falls within just war concept as well. So, yeah, I mean, there is a there is a doctrine. What does that doctrine mean? So, really, defending yourself. What constitutes defending ourselves? Mm. Well, this is part of the first principle of just war. There must be an unjust aggressor. Okay, a nation, uh, a force, or some type of uh, you know group or uh, individuals in society, or an individual attacking you. There must be an aggressor whose cause is unjust and they have a, no just reason to be aggressive. So you, you, a just war involves self-defense. Self-defense of a nation against another, self-defense of a society against elements within society that, that threaten it, self-defense for ourselves against an external or another individual or individuals who seek to harm us. So um, that's the first point about you. The, the, the innocent party must have a sincere perception that they are under threat. If that's a prudential judgment that they have to make themselves. And if they come to a sincere, honest judgment that they are threatened, and that's a serious threat to their existence, their viability, their person, their health, their loved ones, um, then they have a right 
in inverted commas, and it's a real right, to respond, to respond proportionately to rebut that aggression, that offence or, or that threat. And, I mean, I'm just thinking about it here. Do we have a moral obligation to try and negotiate, uh, to try and, and mitigate against it going to a full-scale war? Like, if yes, there is an unjust aggressor, we have a moral duty to try and negotiate peacefully, exhaust every possible means. Yeah, and that's, that's part of the doctrine. So there's different elements to this doctrine. And I'm just looking at my notes here. You want to turn to the Catechism of the Catholic Church. It's paragraph 2309. And it outlines the elements. And I've just outlined the first one. There must be an unjust aggressor or threat. You're, you have a right to respond, to defend yourself as a nation, as a society, society, as a person. That response must be proportionate in the circumstances. That's point two. Point three, before responding with force against force, you must have exhausted all opportunities to resolve the conflict peacefully. Okay, now that depends on the circumstances. I mean, we can look at various wars in history. Um, a clear example is the Second World War. We had a, a, obviously an unjust aggressor in Adolf Hitler. And we saw threats to various nations before the outbreak of the Second World War in Europe. So we had a threat against Czechoslovakia. Uh, the German claim for, for the Sudetenland. We had Czechoslovakia wanting to fight to resist German aggression. In the interim, we had powers such as France and Britain trying to uh, ward off that war and come to a peaceful resolution. We had Italy involved as well. And that there was an outcome that satisfied the major powers at the time, averted war, but didn't satisfy the Czechs. And the Czechs were then backstabbed when the Nazis not only took Sudetenland, but the rest of Czechoslovakia uh, within, you know, uh, within only a matter of six to nine months after that agreement. In the case of Poland, it was a there were threats to Poland as well by Nazi Germany. Uh, and they wanted to, you know, to eliminate the Polish corridor, to reunite East Prussia with mainland Germany. And I'm not sure of the particulars there, but, you know, it would have been necessary for the Germans and the Poles to try and resolve that matter peacefully before any armed conflict. But we know from hindsight, in any case, that Hitler wasn't a sincere, honest and person who intended to have peace in the, in, in the first place. Hitler was a warmonger and was seeking war. And we, we will sometimes come to the conclusion from obvious circumstances that negotiation is futile because we're not dealing with someone sincere. And the Poles were now ultimately attacked. Um, what did they have left available to them by way of negotiating peace or trying to resolve it peacefully? There, were none. there was nothing. Okay, Hitler was not sincere. Hitler uh, launched the great attack and the Poles had no other choice but to, to respond with force against that unjust aggression and to use proportionate force. So the Germans invaded with a large scale invasion. 17 days later, the Soviet Union came from the east as well. And the Poles, well, um, they were justified to use force definitely in those circumstances. 
Now, another fact that comes into play here, this is a complex part of the doctrine, um, and I'm reading it here, there must be serious prospects of success. I find that the hard, the hardest of the, of the elements uh, of the preconditions for a just war, because that's implying that we shouldn't be engaging in self-defense if it's futile or it could lead to something worse. Uh, can I give you an example? Say I'm a shopkeeper, and my dad was for many years, and someone comes into the shop, pulls out his pistol, and says, give me all the cash in the till, or I'll shoot you and your family. Now, instinctively, I mean, of course, that's an unjust aggressor who has no right to your money. But you would know instinctively, hey, hold on, you know, it's not worth fighting over the cash. Uh, you know, he's going to kill me. That's what I'm sensing. Um, he's going to kill my wife who's just next to me, my kids who are in the room behind me. No, take the cash. So to engage in proportionate self-defense there, to fight him off, might be more do more harm than good. Exactly. And therefore, I should not respond with aggression. But just, it's not worth it. Take the cash. I'll report him to the police and hopefully the police can deal with it. Um, and you can look at the current war between Ukraine and Russia. And I know that some people at the beginning were saying, well, Zelensky and the Ukrainians don't stand a chance. They should just roll over, you know? But we've seen in hindsight now, yeah. nearly 11 weeks later, that um, their resistance has been remarkable in its outcomes. No one foresaw that. I mean, it's, it's just absolutely remarkable that that you know what's going on in Ukraine at the moment, and their the, determined defense against the Russian aggression. But what, what intrigued me about what you said was the fact that we must discern correctly: is this a, a, a war worth fighting? I think we, we we discern these things in everyday life, even outside mm -hmm. war. But you know our day to day wars. How, how do we go about doing that? Let's let's focus in on that mm. well enough, like in terms of a large-scale war, let's say yeah. two nations fighting each other. What's a way to go about that? I mean, it's a pretty clear-cut... Uh, well, the first point, the first condition to go about that is that it's the decision of the legitimate authority. That is the legitimate government. They are the ones who, and only they have the right to make the call on armed resistance or to fight a just war. So in the case of Ukraine, there's not many people I know who doubt that the Zelensky government is a legitimate government of Ukraine, though I do know some who, who doubt that, but they're in, this, they're in the realm of the ultra conspiracy theorists who think that his election was rigged and if it was rigged, he's not the legitimate authority, he's not the legitimate government, he has no right to call for resistance. But from Looking at it, you know, facts straight as they are, um, the, the prima facie situation, that he's a legitimate government, it's his call. Now, uh, say you as an individual, your attack, whose call is it? It's yours. What criteria do you use to determine whether to fight or not? Well, the, it's a matter of your own prudential judgment in the circumstances. And St. Augustine wrote about this. And St. Augustine was rather um, 
he wasn't so restrictive here. He understood that people make a decision sometimes in the heat of the moment with, at very short notice and that they have to make that decision according to their own subjective perceptions at that moment. So, you know, if someone, if I'm just walking down the street doing my normal morning exercise and someone comes charging at me with, with, a, with a, you know, 12 inch knife, you know, I've got a split second to make a decision. And these are decisions police have to make in many circumstances. And they can't go through a, a checklist one by one in, 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 in comfortable time to, to tick off the boxes as to whether the perceived threat is valid or not. They have to make an impulsive decision. Yeah, that's right. And the, the doctrine is in favour of, you know, people making a, a decision that they believe genuinely, genuinely to be what the case is, what the situation is at that moment. They might be objectively wrong in hindsight, but at the time that was the perceived threat and they had that real fear and they can act on that to engage in proportionate self-defence. Exactly, because that's in keeping with the situation because there yeah. is criteria that we have to follow, but that practic being practically applicable in the situation is what the situation is presenting based on the time. Yeah. You know, if there's, if there's a foreseeable threat, you obviously have more time to work with. If it's, you're attacked in the park, you only have a split second to make a decision. Even though yeah. if you were... So what you're saying is if you look back, let's say if you made in hindsight the wrong decision whether or not to fight for your life uh, with, with a split second situation, um, it, was, it, it would have been morally justifiable at that point in time because you did everything you can with the situation. Even yes, according to your conscience at the time. Exactly. Your perceptions at the time. Now, it's easy to be wise in hindsight. Now, we see often with police and police shootings of, uh, of people who are aggressors, attackers, etc. And later on, there's a public outcry. And, you know, then there's followed an in, uh, some type of inquiry, judicial inquiry or, or royal commission or whatever. And yeah, again, it's easy to be wise in hindsight. And it's easy to make judgments when you're not the person under pressure at that moment. Um, and sometimes you have to feel sorry for people who, who really felt genuinely that their lives were threatened and they responded impulsively uh, at the time and at the time they felt they had no other choice. But there are circumstances where it's quite obvious that, you know, the threat is there, but it's not really seriously dangerous and your response must be proportionate. So if I'm driving to a venue and parking my car and there's some louts throwing eggs at my, you know, my car and eggs could cause some damage to my car, the paintwork, you know, whatever, whatever. Now I have no right there to use uh, fatal force, for example, you know, I can of course defend my property, you know, but I can't use excessive force. Uh, that wouldn't be just in the circumstances because it's disproportionate. Exactly. I think, I think we've, I it's it's very clear to me, you know, what you're trying to say. I hope to many of our listeners, they understand the mindset that we have to approach anything. Let's look at larger scale situations. I know you wanted to speak about the situation in Ukraine and Iraq. Um, so let's let's look at the practical application in those situations uh, with the teaching of the church and the proper discernment that we spoke about. This whole criteria. Mm. Mm. Well, let's look chronologically here that is the first of these two wars, okay? We have a superpower in the United States invading a smaller power, Iraq. Now we have a superpower in Russia invading a smaller power, Ukraine. So 
let's look at the Iraq war, the American invasion of Iraq 2003. At the time, I was rather indifferent about whether this war was just or not. I didn't like Saddam Hussein. I generally, generally with exceptions, you know, pro-Western. Um, and, I, and I heard and I knew that Pope St. John Paul II at the time was against this invasion and declared it to be an unjust war. I was aware of that. Um, I remember watching Fox News and thinking, well, they're hyping this up. Um, you know, this is just jingoism. And I was beginning to have doubts about whether America should or really had a moral case for intervening in the war. So when you look at it, yeah, um, America goes with Britain and other countries, including Australia, to invade this nation. Uh, did they have justification to invade this nation? What was their grounds for invasion? Well, they claimed that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction, okay? And that he has used them in the past. He used them against the Kurds and other people internally in Iraq. He used them in the Iran-Iraq war from 1980 to 1988. Uh, he was aggress an aggressor in the invasion of Kuwait in 1990-91. So they built the case by saying, well, here's a mad dictator running Iraq. He has got a history of aggression and murder and slaughter and repression. He has used chemical weapons in the past and he's still got them and he will use them again. And uh, he will use them against the United States. Was, was this factual? Did he still have them? And was he threatening the United States? Well, one could conclude that, well, he might have still had them. There was no evidence specifically. It wasn't absolutely certain. They tried to build the case in the international forum, and I think they were struggling. I think they were really um, trying to create this pretext out of very skimpy evidence, to say the least. They're trying to create a justification rather than say, we have one for certain, let's deal with this. They're trying to spruik it on the world stage, claiming weapons of mass destruction, but not proving it absolutely. Even if they had weapons of mass destruction, which they didn't prove, was there a perceived threat to the United States or Great Britain or Australia? or any other country. Well, I, I don't believe there was such a threat to America, Britain, or Australia, because especially America and Britain, they had more than enough means to, you know, deal with Iraq if Iraq was to use such weapons. Was there a case that Israel, for example, was being threatened by Iraq? Uh, well, they certainly weren't friends, and Iraq, uh, and Saddam Hussein had a Jerusalem army concept one day to march to liberate jerusalem from the jews from the zionists as he called them etc etc but in the end i came to the conclusion years later my own personal conclusion in line with pope saint john paul ii that the war in the end the invasion of iraq was unjust it was not built on any solid foundation of any threat to America or any other country. The so-called weapons of mass destruction were never found during or after the war. Um, and that what the Americans did 
was massively disproportionate. Um, yes, yeah, Saddam Hussein was a dictator, no, and it was a murderous dictator, and we don't like murderous dictators. Um, but you know, if you're going to take out Saddam Hussein because he's a murderous dictator, there's plenty of others on the list that we don't take out. I just thought in the end it was part of the personal family feud between the Bushes and Saddam Hussein that George W. Bush um, resented the fact that, you know, Saddam Hussein and his father went to war and that Saddam Hussein was still anti-George H. Bush Sr., H. W. Bush Sr. And, you know, it seemed to me just at, at that petty level. Um, I, if I was George W. Bush, I'd be still having problems of conscience about not just the war, but the aftermath. Uh, and again, here's a part, here's another factor against this war being just the massive disproportionate consequences. The invasion caused far more evils than it prevented. I mean, the, you saw the, much of the country destroyed. You saw the Christian population uh, severely depleted. So many of the Christians had to flee Iraq. The church was devastated. You saw chaos and you saw the eventual rise of ISIS and its evils that it inflicted on the Middle East and other parts of the world. None of these things would have happened if Saddam Hussein was allowed to stay. Again, I'm not being an apologist for Saddam Hussein, uh, but sometimes you have to tolerate the lesser evil. And in hindsight, and I'm wise here only in hindsight, Saddam Hussein uh, was the lesser evil compared to the death and destruction caused by that war compared to the aftermath of ISIS and all the other chaos? Well, I mean, one of the biggest things you have to discern where if you're about to go to war is that, is this worth defending because of how much loss of life we will also incur on our end and how much loss of life on the enemy's end? I mean, really... It's an absolute absolutely essential part of the calculation okay is it worth fighting um and if you again it's about prudential judgment by the legitimate authority weighing it up um and it's, again it's easy to be wise in hindsight so it was thought you know we take out saddam hussein we'll put in a democratic friendly government in the in iraq and that will settle the middle east it'll protect the other countries kuwait it will protect Jordan, it will protect Israel. Um, but in, in actual fact, it created a vacuum which was partially filled temporarily by ISIS. And it emboldened Iran. I mean, what the Americans did was take out one enemy and strengthen another. Because much of the influence in that part of the world, the influence vacuum was filled by Iran, which is another power, much more powerful now than Iraq and much more antagonistic to the United States. So, yes, weighing it up, the consequences cannot be worse than the, than the evil you're trying to remove. If I go back to another war, the Vietnam War, where the Americans fought for over 10 years. Was that a just war? Many doubted it was, but they were of the left. They were of the hard left and they wanted communism to prevail and spread throughout the world. They supported communist China and the Soviet Union. They supported the spread of communism. I think it was a just war to fight the spread of communism and to fight the spread of communism in Southeast Asia. And we see the consequences of the failure. 
Um, because the Americans failed in South Vietnam, the whole of Indochina fell to communism and you had millions slaughtered afterwards, which wouldn't have happened if the Americans had succeeded in you know, preventing the spread of communism in Southeast Asia. Again, no war is, no war is a good thing. Okay, the Vietnam War inherently was not a good thing. Millions of Vietnamese died, 58,000 Americans died, 501 Australians died and others died by the thousands. Um, but there was a just cause in trying to fight the spread of atheistic, repressive communism at the time. Though if I go into a parenthesis here, the real solution to fighting the spread of communism was not our force of arms, but really the message of Our Lady of Fatima. And if that was lived out and you know, fulfilled, that, that was the way, that was the he heaven's plan to fight the spread of communism rather than our own military might, our own strength. Here's an interesting thought which has occurred to me is now cross wars where let's say in the case of Vietnam, many countries came in to fight Vietnam. Let's say, let's look at the Australian context where we joined that fight. What perceived threat was there to Australia uh, with, with the war on Vietnam? And, and how do we justify joining a war with multiple other um, allies and, and then sharing, let's say, the, the results uh, or what's to come out of it, all the benefits? I think we're putting my, our mindset back into the early to mid 60s. You know, the United, Australia decided to join the Vietnam War in 1966, all the way with LBJ, et cetera, Harold Holt and all that. Australia was around only 11 million people at the time. To our north was the Soviet Union, uh, a nuclear superpower, and communist China at the time, a population of about 750 to 800 million at the time. Overwhelmingly much more powerful than Australia. And on the aggression path, trying to take over South Korea, uh, having taken over North Vietnam and infiltrating into South Vietnam. So the view was this theory called domino theory that one country after another was falling to communism through these, you know, superpowers, Russia and China, sponsoring guerrilla movements, you know, People's Liberation Army movements in Southeast Asia and other parts of Asia. And there was the Malayan emergency against communist forces in Malaya and in Indonesia in the 60s as well. So there was this real fear that communism was on the spread and eventually it will descend down upon Australia. And Australians were, were rightfully fearful. I mean, they had just a generation earlier experienced the Japanese descending from the north and fighting Australia in Papua New Guinea and other parts of the southwestern Pacific. And Australia herself been bombed hundreds of times by the Japanese. So if it happened once, it could happen again. And China and the Soviet Union combined were more powerful than, than um, Japan was. And so there was a need, it was a, there was a perceived threat, there was an aggression, and there was a genuine fear of Australia being ultimately uh, attacked. And remember, and, and still in the 60s, Australia was more of a Christian nation than it is now. And we feared communism because of its atheism. Um, and so there was that added factor that, that bolstered the cause of so-called 
cause of righteousness against the communist atheist enemy. Whether we have that morality today, I don't think so. That's the problem because we're far more materialistic, less spiritual, far more woke and perverted in so many ways. We wouldn't have the same motivation. Um, so that, that, was, that was the justification for Australia being involved in Vietnam War. Allied with America, the power that could fight and win this war. But ultimately, they did not succeed. Okay. Uh, so, Robert, look, let's go into a bit of an analysis from what Pope Francis and uh, Cardinal Parolin and what, the, what Rome is saying regarding just war in the situation of Ukraine. Yes. Um, Pope Francis has been saying a few things lately that have caught the attention of a lot of people. I'll, I'll read you one quote here, and this is a message he gave to the Russian Orthodox Patriarch Kirill in the course of this current conflict, 16th of March, 2022. There was a time even in our churches that we talked about a holy war or a just war. Today, we cannot speak like that. The Christian conscience of the importance of peace has developed. So that raised a lot of eyebrows. Uh, what's Pope Francis saying here? Is he saying that um, the, the, the traditional concept of St. Augustine, etc., cetera, uh, is not authentic, it's to be tossed out. There's no such thing as just war and uh, no one should fight in any war. Is it a pacifist position? That's what some people, some people are fearful of here. I'll give you another quote, though, of Pope Francis in his encyclical Fratelli Tutti. Quote, we can no longer think of war as a solution because it ri its risks will probably always be greater than its supposed benefits. In view of this, it is very difficult nowadays to invoke the rational criteria elaborated in earlier centuries to speak of the possibility of a just war. And then Pope Francis goes on to quote Pope St. John Paul II, never again war. So I think that in the context of Fratelli Tutti, we, uh, we get a, a clearer understanding of Pope Francis' intentions. I don't think he is intending to completely abrogate or abolish the concept of just war. He's just saying, looking at the criteria, it's very, very difficult to tick them off today. So and, the practical application of... Yeah. Um, I mean, this, I don't think you can have a just war anymore from the point of view of the, being the aggressor. Yeah. The instigator. I still believe you can have a just war in the case of being the defender. Yeah. At the national level, at a societal level, and as a personal level. And I and I've got quotes here from Pope some from Pope Francis to IC, Carolyn Par Cardinal Parolin, uh, made three days later, 19th of March 2022, in an interview. Um, um, and I'm happy to read this quote out. He says the following: Ukraine is resisting Russia based on this principle. What's the principle? Principle of self-defense. He goes on to say, the international community wants to avoid an escalation. That's, that's of the Russia-Ukraine war. And so far, no one has personally intervened. But I see that many are sending weapons. This is terrible to think. It could cause an escalation that cannot be controlled. However, the principle of legitimate defense 
remains. And elsewhere, Car Cardinal Parolin, another interview on the 29th of April, says, does this mean that the right of self-defense no longer exists? Of course not. One cannot expect someone unjustly attacked not to defend his loved ones, his home, his, ho his homeland. So for me, Cardinal Parolin is stating what the traditional teaching is. There is a right to proportionate self-defense of nation, of home, of person. Um, but Cardinal Parolin is adamant that we need to be doing other things and the international community is not engaged in doing other things with respect to Ukraine and Russia. So there's plenty of countries sending weapons to support Ukraine, but Cardinal Parolin is saying that the international community is not doing enough to peacefully resolve the issue or to resolve the issue and bring about peace in Ukraine. So I guess there's some valid arguments, some valid points there that he's making. Um, so if you want to look at the Ukraine-Russia war in detail um, and ask yourself the question, is it a just war from the point of view of Russia? Is it a just war from the point of view of Ukraine? Um, I'm happy for you to play devil's advocate here if you want to argue a particular point and I can either agree or disagree with you if you want to have a look at it from the point of view of Russia first. Okay, so with the Russian situation, I have heard it said that the whole involvement in NATO and stocking up weapons prior, prior to the Russian invasion is what triggered Russia to respond in the way it did. Is it justified for Ukraine to have been trying to get involved with NATO given the sensitivity of mm. the situation and stocking up weapons and placing them on the border of Russia. Yeah. I mean, that's what you often hear. I, I'm, I'm sympathetic with the argument that Russia feels threatened. There's no doubt about it. We've seen now that Russia is really a lot weaker than it really is. And it's up against, it's a $2 trillion economy up against $40 trillion of economy. In, the, in NATO and the United States. Of course, Russia remains the preeminent world nuclear power with the most nuclear weapons and hypersonic missiles. Um, I think that Russia's concerns about Ukraine joining NATO have a, a lot of legitimacy. And I think what was not exhausted is negotiations to find an alternative to Ukraine joining NATO. Um, we have to respect Russia's concerns. I mean, Ukraine was for centuries part of the Russian Empire and the Soviet Union. I support Ukrainian independence. I support the right of Ukrainians to have a separate identity to Russians yeah. and a separate nation and, and have self-determination. But Russia has a right to feel secure. And on that basis, Russia had a right to raise serious concerns. Though the question arises whether its response has been precipitous, premature, and disproportionate. I'm of the view that it has been precipitous and disproportionate. There was still opportunity to negotiate an outcome. For example, Ukraine not join NATO, but have security guarantees from Russia in writing, in a peace, in a treaty. 
if those guarantees were violated by Russia, then Ukraine could have recourse to uh, external assistance. There could have been an agreement like that. With respect to the other Russian claimants, the Donbas, the, 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 the oblasts of Luhansk and Donetsk, these oblasts are provinces, regions, where, which, where the majority of the population is Russian, Russian-speaking. The Russians believe that these Russian natives in Ukraine were being oppressed, discriminated against because of their Russian identity. I believe there was a, there's a solution there too. Um, I believe that they, to satisfy Ukraine, they can remain part of the Ukrainian Federation, pay taxes to the central government and all that, but they could have had a special status, those two oblasts of, of semi-autonomy, whereby Russian language and Russian culture and um, freedom to be Russian within Ukraine would be respected, etc. With respect to Crimea, a solution could have been had there too. I mean, you had Britain exercise a 99-year lease over Hong Kong in previous times, which ended in 1997. I think you could have negotiated a 200-year lease for Russia over Crimea, keep Crimea formally part of Ukraine, but allow, again, Ukraine to have a level of uh, semi-autonomy. I mean, it is predominantly Russian-speaking as well. Allow the Russian fleet to remain in Sebastopol. Um, and, you know, and have that Russian presence generally there and that 200 year lease and they respect the Ukrainian or, uh, sovereignty by paying a, an annual rent for use of Crimea. These are solutions that could have been put into place. Now, some people might laugh at these solutions, but they would have been better solutions. They would have been achievable solutions, workable solutions that would have prevented the horrific slaughter we have now because the Ukraine-Russia war is a scandal. It's a war between Christian peoples, baptized peoples. And looking at it now from the point, the Christian point of view, not just the geopolitical point of view, it is a horrific scandal causing immense harm, hurt, sorrow, pain, death, destruction, both for Russians and Ukrainians. I mean, uh, about $700 billion worth of destruction has been wrought upon Ukraine, not to mention the worst destruction of, of families and, and, and fathers and husbands and sons and families, mothers and children being killed as well, all unjustly. What about the poor Russian soldiers? 26,000 killed already, and a generation of Russians which are born in the early part of this century when Russian birth rates were very, very low. These are conscripts, young men, the same age as my young sons or my, my boys who are 20 and 21. They are being sent to a war that really, I don't think their hearts are in it. For Russians to fight Ukrainians is like Australians fighting New Zealanders. Our hearts wouldn't be in it. We're killing brothers, we're killing uh, sisters, we're killing cousins, we're killing... Many Russians and Ukrainians have married each other. This is a terrible scandal. And between people who believe in the same God, in the same Jesus Christ, the vast majority of Ukrainians are Orthodox, like Russian, separate church, distinct church, but Orthodox, like the Russian Orthodox. There's a large percentage who are Catholic, 
They should not be fighting this war. This is an evil, disproportionate response that could have been averted. There was still room for negotiation. There was still room for compromise. That wasn't exhausted because it wasn't exhausted. The, the war is unjust because the war has caused far more harm than any potential good. The war is unjust. Um, and, okay, the, Putin is a legitimate authority, but he violated uh, these two principles of just war theory. Um, other, other solutions were not exhausted and the carnage is disproportionate and the way the war is fought is unjust. America fought just wars against Nazi Germany and Japan. But America and Britain, in some aspects or some parts of those just wars, fought unjustly by the indiscriminate bombing of civilian targets, the mass bombing of German and Japanese cities, the nuclear bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki were unjust acts carried out in the context of a just war. And the indiscriminate bombing of civilian centers of population by Russia is an aspect of unjust warfare and must be brought to an end. I mean, really, in everything you're saying there, we, sovereignty cannot trump human dignity and human life. If it means, so to a certain extent, if it means that your sovereignty can't prevail or your national interests can't prevail, then so be it in order to defend human life and preserve human life. So that should be the way of thinking. Um, I mean, it, it's very interesting how, how, you know, national interests come above the fact that, you know, we don't want 26,000 soldiers that are Russian dying and Ukrainians are dying, but the national interest of trying to take over Ukraine demilitarize mm. it when there's no massive no perceived threat mm. I, mean, I believe that russia yeah. created pretexts in the same way america created false pretexts to enter iraq the nazi aspect of ukraine is tiny 1.6 percent of ukrainians voted for a nazi party you got the azov regiment which are Nazi, yes, but again, they're a tiny part of the overall Ukrainian defense force. The idea that Ukraine, the Ukrainian government are Nazis, in my opinion, is false. It's propaganda. The idea that Ukrainians uh, were developing chemical weapons, planning to have nuclear weapons, planning to host uh, hypersonic missiles to threaten Russia, there's no evidence for that. Whatever chemical plants existed in Ukraine exist in many other countries by way of research, because Ukraine is a very strong agricultural country, and they had these bio plants engaging in research to protect crops from particular biodiversity challenges or threats, etc. Um, I think that um, so those pretexts being, in my view, invalid. Um, don't justify, undermine the justification for this war as well. Um, also, even worse, is that there were essays published by Putin and the former president, Medvedev, uh, who was president from 08 to 2012, in mid-2021, saying that Ukraine 
is not a is a failed state is, is not a viable country uh ukrainians are really russian and ukraine really belongs to russia so this is part of this nationalist point you were making I mean, the Russians attack Ukraine for being nationalist, but it's the Russians who are denying Ukrainian identity and Ukrainian statehood. And it's what we call irredentism, the desire of Putin to rebuild a formal, former empire. The Russian Empire or the Soviet Empire, those two empires had dominion over Ukraine for centuries altogether. And it's unrealistic. Um, so that's how I see it. I to see threaten it from human that life, To threaten human life for that cause when there's, look at how much loss of life there is at the moment. Look at how human yeah. life is being threatened uh, in the name of trying to regain an empire is, is, is absolute evil. It's, it's just absolutely crazy. But let's go to three practical tools, Robert. What can we do as ordinary citizens to fight back against unjust war and promote just uh, promote the, the whole concept of just war and peace. You know, we don't want to promote just war or any war, but we want to promote peace. What can we do as ordinary citizens? Well, from a strictly spiritual perspective, peace comes from a strong spiritual life. Um, and back in 1917, Our Lady gave a peace plan, a heaven's peace plan, and that peace comes through prayer. So practically for each one of us, do we want peace in our own lives? Are we praying? Are we praying the rosary? Are we practicing virtue, do good and avoid evil, relying on God's grace to bring peace within ourselves, interiorly, in our imagination, in our will, in, in, our, in our heart's desires? Uh, are we engaging, are we working for peace within our own families? Um, we can't, as individuals, achieve international peace by ourselves, but we can create peace where we are. So we all, we, for those who are family, belong to a family, which all of us, or lead families as parents, uh, we should be working for peace. And that's, a, that's an ongoing work, peace between the husband and wife, peace between parents and children, peace between the siblings is something we need to work at and constantly work at and despite our regular failures to constantly get up again and start again because remember one aspect of the spirituality of saint Teresa of the infant jesus um her little way is that life is a continuous series of restarts after little failures so are we people of peace generally within ourselves, in our relation with God, in our relationship with, within our family, in relationship with peers, with friends, workmates, etc. That's what we have to do, uh, try and strive for in our daily lives. Because I try and do that and I, don't, I know I don't always succeed. So I have to restart, recommit. I work with people who sometimes doubt whether they really want peace. You know, there's a saying in the Psalms, uh, I'm a person of peace, but they, when I speak, they war against me without cause. I'm peace-loving, but when I speak, they war against me without cause. I think I work in a situation like that. Um, and so I have to be proportionate in my responses. 
And sometimes my responses can be rather vigorous and disproportionate. And I have to be careful of that. I think we also have to educate ourselves and others about just war theory, not because we want war or we want a just war, but because we have to avoid the other extreme of pacifism. Because in this time, in this age, if we show weakness, that invites war. Because not everyone is virtuous, not everyone is holy, not everyone believes in God, not everyone you know, is, is Christian or wants, wants to be Christian. There are ideologies and religions who do believe in aggressive war to advance their cause. Marxism, you know, Lenin, Marxist-Leninism is a classic case, class warfare. Um, they, Our Lady was right, Russia would spread her errors and cause wars because Marxist ideology wants to cause class war and war between nations to advance that ideology and they take advantage of weakness. And weakness so that would justify showing strength or, yes. or having arms or accumulating arms. Like in the famous, not in the famous words, but in the recent words actually of uh, Peter Dutton, he said the best way to prepare, guarantee peace for the future is to prepare for war. And that's the best way to do it in an imperfect world. In a perfect world, which we don't live in, people would be God-fearing, would be righteous, would be people of peace, and wanting to constantly work for peace. But we don't live in such a, 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 a world. It's like nuclear weapons. I mean, nuclear weapons, the use of nuclear weapons and civilian targets is inherently evil. And we want a world which is disarmed of nuclear weapons. But to do so unilaterally would invite nuclear war because there are nations and ideologies that would pounce at our you know, withdrawal from nuclear deterrence and then engage in nuclear war to achieve quick, swift victory at whatever terrible cost. So, so you know. So showing, so having strength to deter uh, evil is a good thing, but should never be used as much as possible. It's a necessary evil. To have armies, to have weapons, to deter um, potential aggressors and to keep the peace through those means is a necessary evil. Um, what I mean by evil here, really defect. Um, it's not evil to be a soldier. It's not evil to be in the army. You can be a saint, a soldier, and a, a saint in the army, right? Um, but it's something necessary in our fallen world. If we weren't fallen, we wouldn't be having conflict at all. So but we are fallen. I, th I think we've discussed a lot about the the leadership aspect of war. Let's go. Let's go down to the bottom to the foot soldiers and speak about an individual soldier. Let's say, for example, in the Russian army, uh, who's been under the command of uh, Vladimir Putin uh, to engage in his cause. And let's say one of them is a practicing Catholic. How can they go about uh, functioning in good conscience? In what they're involved in. Well, see, St. Augustine, St. Augustine does speak about this as well, the individual soldier. Yeah. And he gives them freedom to come to their own conclusions about the justness of the war, um, according to their own conscience and etc. Now, it's a terrible thing, isn't it? I've often imagined myself, if I was German and 20 years of age in 1914, conscripted into the Nazi army, how would I have 
coped with that or dealt with that? Would I have been heroic enough to be a conscientious objector, knowing that it would have meant my imprisonment and execution? Uh, it would have required sanctity at the highest level. A Russian soldier today would be judged according to their conscience. Uh, and they'd come to a conclusion that the war is just or not based on the evidence around them. And maybe they really do believe sincerely in the pretext for this war that Vladimir Putin has put to the Russian people. Maybe this young conscript, young soldier, really believes that his homeland is threatened. I mean, when you look at the West, what good do you see? What good do you see? You see a West corrupted to the core, morally degenerate. Uh, you see woke LGBTQI transgender agenda in the ascendancy. How could you see good there? How could you be comfortable with that? There are people I know in Australia, good Maronites, very good Maronites, daily mass goers who see this war in the same way as the Patriarch Kirill. This is a war to prevent Ukraine being westernized, woke and made into, you know, a, a, a gay lesbian nation. And I don't want Ukraine to become a woke gay lesbian nation like we have in Australia or elsewhere in the Western world. Um, so in their conscience, they're probably thinking, well, this is, this is a holy war. This is just. And yes, there is collateral damage, which is unfortunate, but there's a greater cause at stake here for Russia and civilization. They'll be judged according to their conscience. I'm trying to find a middle ground. It's very hard. In theory, it's possible. In practice, it it's really very is. difficult. Oh, look, let's peel, peel to the reality. Sure, we don't want them to become degenerate or a um, unholy nation, but if you're if you're a soldier in that army, I'm just thinking to myself, could and you come to the conclusion, well, this is not a just war. This is we're seeing what's happening on the ground. We understand it. Um, would 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 a soldier have a moral obligation to defect from an army if the cause? is not right if they realize that according to their conscience yes they could surrender there have been a number of russian soldiers who have surrendered uh they could you know de defected they could have gone awol you know, missing in action etc um or they could if they do believe in the cause they need to still though act justly in war so they need to avoid uh killing prisoners for example yeah. They need to not kill those who surrender. They need to treat soldiers who have come, enemy combatants who have surrendered justly and humanely. They need not uh, destroy civilians' uh, centers of population or target and kill civilians. They have to act justly in a war that overall is in their minds is just. And that concept comes from John the Baptist when he was baptizing people in the Jordan River. There were, you know, uh, guards who came up uh, saying, what should we do? And he instructed them to use their weapons justly, not to be cruel, etc. So he didn't say, you know, throw away your, your weapons and, and, you know, just disappear into the ether. Um, so, yeah, there, there are different options. But to answer your question in, 
you know, directly. If I'm a soldier in the Russian army and I really believe this war to be unjust, there is an obligation on me somehow, some way to withdraw from it. And I could take the, could go up to my commanding officer and lay down my weapons and say, I'm not going to fight anymore, be arrested and be imprisoned. That's an option. I don't think Putin is executing soldiers who would do that. Nazi Germany would have done that. So you needed the courage of a martyr in that situation. You could surrender, you could defect, you could go AWOL, these are options, um, et cetera. So yes, you, there is an obligation to not participate in an unjust war if you believe it to be unjust according to your conscience. Absolutely. And thank, uh, what's your final message of peace, uh, Robert, uh, for the world? Well, I'm a strong believer in the message of Our Lady of Fatima. I'm a strong believer in the teachings of Jesus Christ. Um, I'm a strong believer that war inherently is evil, though there is a just, you can fight just wars, and these just wars can be noble causes. Um, I would say strive for peace within yourself and your relationship with God, your loved ones, your friends, and those around you. Be peacemakers where you are. Um, the rosary and other forms of prayer are instruments of peace in the world, and that's how we should be living. We don't want the scandal of, of war, and especially war between Christian peoples. Absolutely, and thank you very much for being with me here on the Catholic Toolbox, Robert. It's uh, been absolutely amazing to have you. I'm honoured to be on. Thank you for the invitation and thank you for your work. And in these dark days, the more good people who do good work, the better. God bless you. Thank you very much. And thank you very much for tuning into the Catholic Toolbox. If you want to check out our podcast, you can download it on the Catholic Toolbox Show.com. That's the Catholic Toolbox Show.com or get it wherever you get your podcast. So thank you for tuning in to the show. May God bless you. Until next week. God bless. Take care and take action. In this era of grave spiritual crisis, it is not enough to simply know about your Catholic faith. That is why we need a Catholic toolbox to equip us with the practical skills necessary to live our Catholic faith to reach our ultimate goal, which is heaven for all eternity. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Join us every Tuesday night at 8pm for the Catholic Toolbox as we hand you the tools to go forth, live the faith and change our modern world today. Live on The Voice of Charity.